Chapter 21. Four Walls, Music and a Movie. Come with me tonight, my love, and I promise you all my tomorrows, and I will follow wherever you go. The next day, Hannah, Kyle, Jeff, Maya, Nina, and I went back to Tasty Burger for the festival's closing party and award ceremony. Nina and I got there early, so we waited to go in until others arrived. As I peered into the windows of the restaurant, who should I see but Claire, the social media expert slash actress, holding court over a small group, likely brainstorming tweets and hashtags for later in the evening. When my group arrived, we sat fairly isolated from the crowd and indulged in the free burger deal the festival had with the joint. Dean Treadway, our Q&A moderator from the previous night, graciously came to our table with a tall glass of beer for me, looking to talk movies. Buying someone a drink is such a nice and traditional way of saying hello, so as a non-drinker, it's socially painful to reject it. Somehow, with no words, I subtly got it over to Jeff, where it was cleanly deposited. Awkward beer aside, this Dean fellow was terrific. He loved movies to such an extent and held a familiarity with so many movies, it's hard to imagine anyone amassing that kind of knowledge in a lifetime. He expressed a deep respect and love for having fun up there, made all the more flattering by his overwhelming intimacy with all the films of planet Earth. He especially complimented the acting, specifically John Ryan's and mine, and repeated to me that the film had an excellent sense of time and place. He even mentioned that they nearly nominated me as Best Supporting Actor, but decided against it, since we were nominated for three other things. He also complimented us for being brave enough to let the film be 65 minutes, the exact amount of time, he felt, was needed to tell the story. I asked if he was responsible for the film being in the festival, and he said that he was a juror, not a programmer, but that he did view many of the screeners and did highlight having fun up there as one of their best submissions. So, yes, was the answer. I have one criticism for your movie, at least one, because every film has at least one flaw, and I want you to hear what yours is. Sure, what is it? That opening title sequence. Too long. Gotta cut that down. John Hunt mentioned that opening title sequence in one of his asides. The concept for it was developed fairly late in the script writing, and was actually one of my bright ideas. In the script, we meet Mark in the center of his crisis with himself, and I thought it might be nice to see a collage of photos from his youth, and the youths of other characters in the film, to remind us that drinking and playing music with your friends was fun once. It was also set to one of my favorite songs by Johnny, Robots Do Not Rock, which has a theme about evolving and feeling things you've never felt before. But the credits run the full length of the song, so if you don't want to stare at photos of people you don't know for two minutes, Dean's right, it's too long. For someone like John Hunt, and for repeat viewers who get to see their favorite characters young and happy, I think it has a place. As we spoke, Dean asked simple questions like, What are your favorite films and directors? I was embarrassed to cite lame, run-of-the-mill films as my inspiration, as Dean sees multiple films a day and I see maybe one per week. But Dean wasn't the shaming type. After some time together, he confirmed the pronunciation of Jeff's and my names, which Nina later drilled into our thick skulls, meant that we were likely to win one of those awards we were nominated for. But sure enough, and honestly to my shock, Dean announced that we won Best Writing and their top prize, Best New England Film. We agreed that we would have rather John Ryan won his category than us winning either of ours, but this was still tremendous news, and it felt like a good bookend to the narrative of making this film. We just had that pesky, potentially unnecessary Middle East screening in a month. I learned that Dean was a host on Movie Geeks United, a highly rated filmmaking podcast. 
I asked if I might guest on his show and invited him to guest on Discount Film School as well. We would do both in the following months, necessitating that I become more familiar with Dean, his podcast, and his excellent film lover's blog, Filmicability. I now have a good friend and fellow artist in Dean. The day after the award ceremony, almost everyone involved in the film came over to my house to swim, eat, and jump around in a bouncy castle, which has become a summer tradition. We recorded a How Are We, in which the conversation led, but was not planned, to some of us confronting John Hunt about his recent weight gain. Jeff, as a nearby spectator, tried not to judge, but found the public nature of that sensitive conversation to be unusual at the very least. As evidenced by this book, I live fairly out loud, and so do many of my closest friends. I'm sure it's caused partially by our shared predilection for performance, but I'd also like to think it's a helpful tool for me to live without secrets and to abide by a policy of, to thine own self be true. As I build a career and continue to grow up, I find rigorous honesty, as AA puts it, to be a sometimes damaging way to live, but I find that unfortunate and frustrating, especially as an artist. Otherwise, the sunny day was a spectacular and loving celebration of a job well done. The intervening month was filled with awesome interviews and shoots for the wedding documentary, including a roundtable with the New England wedding professionals, in which nine local professionals spoke to us about their jobs and debated trends in the wedding industry today. Also, on a complete whim, we launched a new web series called What's in Junt's Cart, Junt being a loving pseudonym for John Hunt, coined by Mike Morse, used primarily in podcasts and videos he's featured in, in which the bargain-hunting Junt takes us around a retail store and explains his shopping strategy to great comic effect. I would soon start planning for the Middle East screening, for which my motivation was low. I was fairly certain our turnout was going to be small, and the effort involved wasn't going to be worth it. After trading emails with Johnny and the house, I had most of the information I needed on what gear and cabling we would need to make the night a success. We would bring our own projector, borrowed from my school, and use the venue's sound system for both the music and the movie. As I started to gear up the social media promotion, titled Jeff and Frankie's Movie in Cambridge with Live Music Free, I wanted people to know three things. Their friends made this movie, it's in Cambridge, and it's free. I got an email from the Austin Film Festival saying they were interested in our film. Not that we were accepted, but that they were interested, which was a new one for me. Several weeks later, I was stuck on my daily bus ride when they left me a voicemail asking me to call back right away. Waiting an hour to return that call was awful, but rewarding when they essentially told me I was in the festival. The movie's acceptance was contingent on my and hopefully other cast and crew's attendance, which I agreed to without even consulting my calendar. This was pretty huge news. The Austin Film Festival has been touted to me as one of the best in the country and one of the best fits for me as a filmmaker, especially for having fun up there, as Austin is a big music town. My past films have been rejected, except for Psycho Sleepover, which did screen in 2008, to my surprise. Some confuse AFF with South by Southwest, which has grown to near Sundance fame. AFF isn't quite there, but it's still a big deal, especially to us little guys in Boston. It began as a screenwriting competition and continues to hold one of the biggest screenwriting conferences and pitch competitions in the nation, so much so that a writing professor at my film school brings a group of interested students every year to attend and compete. Which writing professor? The one who taught the class Jeff and I met in. Poetry, folks. I announced this a week before the Middle East screening, the moment the festival allowed me. They were kind of precious about releasing the schedule, which included the announcement of two screenings. I had only ever attended festivals with one screening per movie, but apparently this was the big time. The excitement for my collaborators and supporters was high. 
My parents, Jeff, Kyle, Nina, Hannah, and Hannah's entire immediate family were going. It was also the first opportunity Bonica and Emily, both residents of the area, would have to go to a screening. At work, I was now the head of a department, and Kyle, Hannah, and I made up half of that group. So I was back to the logistical complications I had during shooting, this time with more responsibility. Fortunately, our other team members offered happily to pick up the slack and insisted we go and have a good time. I would likely answer emails and catch up in the hotel at night, but I was relieved. Before accepting it, one of the programmers, Harrison, asked me how the film was doing, and I stupidly mentioned the option that Rhodes Films had with us, which to him equaled distribution. Some festivals will disqualify you from competition categories if you have a distribution deal, because, similar to the politics of premiering that I described in a previous chapter, the festival wants to share credit for your distribution deal. When they asked, how's it been doing, I didn't know if I should play it up, you should accept our film, it's gaining steam, or play it down, you should discover our film. Turns out I should have played it down. I backpedaled, insisting that it was just representation and we had no release. I shared the contract with them to prove it, which convinced them. We were accepted into their comedy vanguard category, and we were told that the head juror for the category in 2014 was Phil Rosenthal, creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. It seemed having fun up there was generally considered a comedy, which always confused me slightly. I always thought of it as a character drama with comedy in it. Everybody Loves Raymond, it most certainly was not. We would fly to Austin the last week of October 2014, but I still needed to get through September 27th at the Middle East, which was fast approaching. Abruptly, Mike and Aaron announced they were getting married September 27th and moving to Seattle two days later. Aaron was also asking me to be his best man. Their date was set and announced two weeks prior, and I was hardly able to ask them to change it. When I mentioned it to them, I got the predictable, whoops, lol, but thankfully, according to the timeline they were advertising, I would be able to join them for the ceremony, eat a little, give my best man speech, and then get on the road for the two-hour trip to the venue. John Hunt was invited to the wedding and of course planned to attend the screening, but he designated me as the assumed carpool driver since I was definitely going to both places. After packing Nina's 2003 Toyota Corolla with plastic totes of books, DVDs, and Blu-rays, as well as camera gear and a bungee-bound handcart of projector equipment, there was absolutely no room for John. He fussed about this some and ultimately didn't go to the wedding, saying that driving himself from Cape Cod and then back to Boston was too much expense. He would simply meet us at the screening. Weddings were certainly on the mind, as we had been working on the documentary, and Aaron and Mike's was entirely antithetical to everything we had been looking at. There was beauty, sincerity, and a tremendous amount of truth in the absolute lack of planning that went into their day. A caravan of cars followed them to a nearby beach, the parking lot of which was under construction. We stepped onto the beach where hundreds of sunbathers were sitting peacefully by the coast. Fifty or so of us wandered by, fully clothed, looking desperately for a halfway decent place to conduct the ceremony. We settled on a haphazard log as their stage, where Mike's sister officiated. They both stumbled awkwardly through their vows while I committed it to video. Everything about the moment was truly genuine. All of their supporters were truly proud to be there, and Mike and Aaron truly, obviously loved each other. Keith Sadik and I offered our prepared words, which appeared to warm Aaron's icy heart, and after a few hot dogs, Nina and I dashed up to Boston. I posted a Facebook video from the car, pleading that people come check out the movie. The Middle East, being a live music venue probably has a method for unloading equipment into their building, but I didn't know it. So we rolled a hard six, pulled up to the front of the building, and jumped out with the stuff. 
Nina parked, and I quickly ran into EJ, who again offered to record the event, this time with a fancy two-camera setup, and Kyle, who were alone in the room. Leading up to the day, I had been most anxious about the sound and projector setup. Where's a good place to prop the projector? How do I connect the sound system to our setup, and what connectors do I need? Do I bring a Blu-ray player? Between the house's sound guy, and the technical expertise of Kyle, EJ, and eventually John Hunt, we were playing the film, sound and all, in minutes. The screen was behind the stage. The projector had a great feature in which you could aim the throw without tilting or moving the projector at all, which allowed us great flexibility in where we could set it. It was ultimately placed at the edge of the stage, pointing slightly up, and the image couldn't have looked better. It would prove to be, visually, our best screening. When we were done, Nina and Hannah had erected our merch table, complete with DVDs and Blu-rays of having fun up there, and all our other films, as well as 11 by 17 posters and dozens of paperbacks. Hannah brought a few bags of Boom Chicka Pop, a health food popcorn we had fallen in love with, and distributed them in paper bowls. We now had nearly an hour before the music was scheduled to start, so I did my usual stress eating, this time on Hannah's popcorn, while stalking around the joint, wondering if we missed anything. Jeff, Johnny, and their brood were outside at the bar, stress-free and drinking, looking forward to a fun night. I attempted to entertain people as they entered, particularly the ones who I knew personally, offering information about when they can return if they wanted to go eat something at the restaurant. The room was not big, and a little awkward for a seated crowd, but we placed chairs in rows, and it actually worked out well. But with ten minutes before start, it was still a light crowd in the actual club, maybe twenty people. I heard a rumor from someone that a concert was starting in the neighboring venue shortly after our film was scheduled to play, and some of its attendees were considering checking us out. Whether that was true, or people were just waiting outside until the actual start time, I don't know. But all at once, we went from sparse to packed, bringing the room to a comfortably crowded 70 people or so. When the time was right, Jeff and I jumped on stage, me and my Adala shirt, which became my favorite shirt for screening the movie, welcomed everyone, gave an idea of timeline, introduced Johnny, and let him take it away. He was clearly home on that stage, having played there many times. He introduced Robots Do Not Rock as the first song, and playfully criticized me for booking the music before the movie because those who hadn't seen it wouldn't have context for the songs. I stand behind this order. The worst would be if people came for the film and then emptied out before the music started. Beginning with the music also allowed people to arrive late and not miss the movie. What followed was a wonderful half hour of this natural and talented performer playing awesome acoustic versions of songs I had heard a few million times during editing, and songs Jeff was also deeply intimate with, having played drums on most of them during their band days. Highlights included Hannah and Nina volunteering to jam out with maracas and tambourines to Terra Nova, a song that is in the film but pushed to the background so much it's nearly inaudible. Jeff and Gowell also got to join in with some makeshift percussion and vocals for Millennium Blues, which was a really fun reunion for the group. Before playing the obvious finale of Snow Day, our credit song, Johnny also performed the live debut of the only original song written for the film, Wherever You Go. When we first were developing the script, we didn't quite know how we would use music in the film. We knew Snow Day would be Mark's ending song, and we knew Johnny would be the primary, if not only, musical voice throughout, but we had options. Do we only feature music that's played live, or at least established as diegetic, in which the source of the music is presented as part of the action of the film? Or can we use some non-diegetic pieces? Will we use any kind of score, or will it all be soundtrack-based? 
Jeff came up with the great idea of using an isolated baseline, Mark being a bassist, to score some of the montages. But while editing, I came across the scene in which Mark and Carla were drinking and eventually faced the reality that she might be pregnant. Music, if used right, could be so helpful in setting a unique tone for the scene, but I didn't know how or with what. Because Breaking Bad had just wrapped up, I had it on the mind, and in their third to last episode, when Walt is at his lowest point, they scored a scene with this wonderful song from 1960 by the Limelighters called Take My True Love by the Hand. It had a ukulele depression music vibe, complete with a whistling track, evoking a kind of Grapes of Wrath tone. I plugged it in as a temp track and really liked it, and without committing the cardinal sin of asking Johnny to simply make us a royalty-free version of the song, I asked him to see if he could accomplish a similar tone with an original piece. I waited for many weeks for him to come up with something. This is a man with a full-time job and two kids, and he was going to write the whole thing himself in his free time, which required getting down to his rehearsal space. I didn't mind the wait, because I was still slogging through the color correction. One morning at 6am, I received an mp3 of Wherever You Go. It too began with whistles, and emotionally hit the mood of the scene better than the temp track ever could. One of the things I really wanted it to do was play against the content of the scene, with a false sense of romance. Almost an ironic gondola ride. He nailed it with the lyrics and soft melody. Come with me tonight, my love, and I promise you all my tomorrows, and I will follow wherever you go. Take my hand and feel no shame, and that there is no pain. There was one challenge, being that the song, as a track, didn't map onto the scene as it was edited, and the cut was locked for color correction. I'm used to this, having cut many commercial songs down to the length of a cut by removing verses or condensing bars, so I did that to wherever you go. Except this time, the guy who wrote the song was available to rework it to the needs of the film, and he wasn't happy with my butchering of the song. He requested a copy of the cut and squeezed it in perfectly. 
In the film, Carla's final line in the montage is, Oh, thank Christ. And I had it in my head that the music needed to punctuate the very end of the scene, after that line. Johnny expected it would end immediately before the line was delivered. He was absolutely right, and after unnecessarily going back and forth a few times, that's how it ended up in the final film. As he tuned to play the song, he asked me to jump up on stage and intro it. I explained why we needed the song, and condensed the story to, so I just asked him to come up with something and he did, and it was perfect, implying there wasn't much back and forth. When I exited, Johnny laughed, saying we went back and forth many times on this one. I rushed back up to deliver a spirited rebuttal to Johnny's amusement. Once I got off stage and stayed off stage, Johnny mentioned, almost in passing, actually, this is a weird song because uh, a lot of the movie's about Jeff in a weird way, and this song drags me back to a point in Jeff's life I'm glad he's well away from. Jeff laughed in the moment, but later mentioned to me in email, can I tell you that in the we're all blind to our shortcomings category that I had no idea that wherever you go was written about my relationship with the proto Carla until Johnny said so and now it makes so much sense. The bridge and if you go down put my arms around you and basically sink to the bottom. Yeah, now it's a ton more awful and true. Dude is too smart for his own good. I whistled along and enjoyed the rest of the concert hand in hand with Nina finally just enjoying myself as my heart rate slowed. The music being played was in our film, so I had that connection to it, but I was also just a fan of the musician and his songs. As far as free shows, it was pretty great, even for me, the guy hosting. John Hunt recorded the audio from the center of the room and matched with EJ's two-camera setup. It is forever preserved as one of my many warm filmmaking memories. Johnny finished Wherever You Go with a punctuated Oh, oh Thank Christ, Christ into the mic, as it was now an honorary part of the song. Several minutes after Johnny was off stage, having fun up there played to our audience, hitting every beat to my satisfaction, with near-perfect projection. When the credits finished, I brought up EJ and Will for one more song, and they performed the ridiculous Idea People song for the crowd. When the buffoonery ended, I had the venue for another hour, so we got to take a little extra time with our Q&A, introducing each member of the cast and crew individually. Our Q&As wouldn't be complete without telling the radio location story or the Canopy Lake Turn Salem story, so we did, with extra animation from the tipsy Jeff. The merch table sold badly, which I mostly expected, as no one wants physical media cluttering up their apartments, but we moved a few books. A young filmmaker I had never met, our mutual connection being Johnny, was especially taken by the quality of the film and the passion of our group, which was flattering and meaningful. She went on to follow the future endeavors of Red Cow. Maria and her boyfriend John wanted to grab some after-show food, but I needed to pack our traveling circus back into the car. Nina said she would get the Corolla as EJ and I packed up. We met her in front of the restaurant and packed as quickly as we could, but we were struggling desperately to close the doors in the trunk. While we wrestled with the equipment, a Boston cop rolled up alongside us and pointed to a sign. Hey, help me out here. What does that sign say? I, I'm sorry? That sign, I can't see it too well. What's that say? Absolutely no parking. We're leaving right this second. We're just trying to get this equipment packed. That's what I thought. Luckily, he zoomed off. I got into the driver's seat and tried to tell Nina that others wanted to go out and wanted advice about where and how to park. It was going to mean paying a parking fee all over again, $20 or so, in the lot she'd just left, which was now possibly closed. I tried to answer a text from Maria while driving, and that was the last straw. Between packing up on the curb, texting while driving, and the stress of parking, Nina became furious with me, as we both fell into a rare relationship moment where we despised one another for the next 30 minutes. 
As I read this aloud to her, she tells me that's wrong. When we drove away from the cop, we packed the equipment too quickly and the hand dolly wasn't collapsed. We were able to squeeze it into the car and get all the doors closed, but after we parked, she wanted a few minutes to close it and repack things. I told her she should just leave it, and that was the last straw. She also tells me she was more generally irritated by her role as crew throughout the otherwise fun night, and hopes we don't take as much merchandise and gear to manage next time. The air, for me, was suddenly taken out of the fun and successful night. I still had an obligation to go out with the cast and crew, and after we parked, Nina stated that she would wait in the car for me, but I begged her to come. Exhausted, emotionally and physically, I tried to represent myself as my usual fun self as we defaulted to a divey pizza place where I stuffed myself with mozzarella sticks. John and Maria, however, genuinely enjoy our company, and I theirs, and I was glad to have gone out after all. They insisted on paying for our parking, which wasn't necessary. Nina's in my fight was stupid, over-emotional, and simply visceral, and it dissipated as fast as it materialized. The next morning, I went for a run by myself, and was warmed by a few sentiments from both Jeff and Johnny, thanking me for bringing the night together. If only they knew how hard it was to load and park that car. <laughs>